thank you to Johnny and the band. It was a moving, both services moved to tears in that worship set. I just so appreciate uh, being led. I want to begin this morning with the idea that how you tell a story matters. How a story begins matters. We certainly see that in the Bible, but that's true of any kind of storytelling. You think of movies, how a movie opens. What about literature? To make the point this morning, I want to share just a few opening lines of some works of literature and see if you can name them just by the opening sentence or so. First one, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Anybody put your hand up. This is the audience participation part. Yeah, we've got a bunch of people know that that's Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. How about this one? It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Any hands up on this one? I don't think I see anybody on this one. There were a bunch in the first service. 1984 by George Orwell. Some people who, you can take the risk of guessing. There's no uh, prize or penalty here. This one's a little darker. 124 was spiteful, full of baby's venom. Anybody know? Any hands on this one? Yeah, this one's a little trickier. This is Toni Morrison's Beloved. And one of my personal favorites, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, right? Here, here, by C.S. Lewis. There are others that come immediately to mind. Call me Ishmael, Moby Dick, right? Or one that gives itself away in a hole in the ground. There lived a hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. There's power in how a story begins. We heard one of the great openings to one of the New Testament gospels this morning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Probably my all-time favorite is the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And all of these openings create this sense of draw, right? They pull you in, whether it's a story in the scripture or stories written by human authors. And so as we come to Matthew's gospel, the beginning of Advent this morning, looking at, again at the New Testament, Matthew begins his birth narrative in this way. He says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they had come together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. It's a great couple of lines like those other openings, right? It draws you in. It, it, it eludes some questions or necessitates a, a series of questions. But here's the problem. That's verse 18. That's not actually how Matthew begins his gospel. It's not actually how Matthew begins the first chapter or the story of the advent of the coming of Christ. And so how does Matthew begin? He begins of all things, with a genealogy. And so we're going to read that this morning, and then we're going to ask the question, why? Why is this a great opening for the Advent story in Matthew's gospel? We'll read together, beginning in verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. 
Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. In the first section, we see Jesus' line from Abraham to David. Matthew continues. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. The second section takes us from David to the Babylonian exile. And then Matthew concludes with this last section. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, and Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, and Abiud fathered Eliakim, and Eliakim fathered Atzor, and Atzor fathered Zadok, and Zadok fathered Akim, and Akim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Matan, and Matan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And then Matthew ends with this curious verse for emphasis. He says, so all the generation, generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. It's only at that point that Matthew begins the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. Pray with me this morning. Our God and Father, we look to you this morning as we open your word, as we see Matthew begin with your lineage, Lord Jesus. And we ask the question, why does Matthew begin here? Why does he want us to know this first? And Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, through our quick study of this genealogy, that we would know you more. Oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, speaking of great lines, in the song Silent Night is the line, The Dawn of Redeeming Grace. And that's actually the title of Sinclair Ferguson's 24-day Advent devotional that we're using as a loose framework for this series as we talk about uh, these different movements through the Advent season. We've got some copies of this available at the Welcome Center. You can order it at Amazon or CBD. Uh, but we'll be following that. When it's of note this morning, in this first Advent message, I think this is unique from what the other uh, uh, preachers will do this month. Um, I'm going to use Ferguson's kind of salient points as our outline. And they just kind of expound on them this morning. So we're really looking at uh, one devotion per day creates one point of our outline this morning. So as Ferguson approaches this genealogy in Matthew, he says essentially there's three things that Matthew wants to teach us from this genealogy and from starting with the genealogy. And we'll look at them in succession. They are first that God is a God of new beginnings, that he's a God of promises kept, and that he is a God of surprising grace. And so let's look at the first one, God of new beginnings. How does Matthew's genealogy teach us that God is a God of new beginnings? Well, first, by just how the story is told, by the fact that he begins with a genealogy. Now, let's be, uh, let's be honest. Uh, many of us, when we're reading the Bible, you know, begin in January, do that read through the Bible plan. 
if you're honest, and I won't poll you on this, a lot of us, when we get to the genealogies, we just kind of jump ahead, right? We, at, the, at the most, we might kind of skim through quickly. By the way, I learned from one of my mentors, Dr. Dave Reed, that to pronounce biblical names, just read them fast and with confidence and people will believe you got it right. <laughs> but Matthew starts with a genealogy and we should be asking, like when we study any passage of scripture, like when we were reading and studying Deuteronomy, what was Matthew wanting to convey to his original audience? In this case, to a Jewish audience who were first hearers and then later readers, what was it that Matthew wanted to communicate to them? And then what does it mean for us today? So we're gonna try to do that uh, this morning. And Matthew begins with this idea, or at least encapsulated in this genealogy, that God is starting again. To the Jewish reader, the opening line of the first sentence of chapter one would have been read this way, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And Matthew's words there are intentional. He's signaling that God is making a new beginning, a new Genesis, if you will. That when Jesus comes into the world, something new happens. Ferguson in his devotional makes the point that it's likely that Paul has this in mind when he writes in, first, or in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new has come. In other words, Paul is saying that when, when uh, we come to faith in God through belief in Jesus Christ, something new is born in our hearts. We literally become new creations in Christ and God begins the transformative work of making him, us more like his son. On a macro level, what we celebrate on Advent is that when Christ came to this planet, God in human flesh, it was a new Genesis. Matthew's second point around this idea of new beginning is that this new beginning was the new beginning of Jesus' kingdom. Matthew's gospel is known as the gospel of Christ as king. And from the very first words, he is beginning to make his case that Jesus is king, that his gospel and his message is about the kingdom of Christ that is coming here on earth. It's a kingdom not of an earthly throne at this time, but as Jeremiah 31 tells us, it's a kingdom that begins with the hearts of individuals. Jesus comes and he brings something completely new. And so from his miracles and his teaching all the way to the last words in Matthew's gospel about his authority, it's about Jesus as king. It's about a new start and Jesus as king. Now this should be a tremendous encouragement to you this morning if you feel like you need a do-over in 2022. Maybe you've blown it in some way. Or maybe you feel like for some reason you're damaged goods or you're jaded Matthew's genealogy points us to the idea that God gives opportunity to begin again. And he does throw through Jesus who is king. And we'll see how as we explore further. But listen to Ferguson's words. He says, as we stand in the opening pages of Matthew's gospel, God is bringing about a grand reversal. The whole story of the Old Testament has been in preparation for it. Listen, the beginning has, the new beginning has begun. What follows will tell the story of how Jesus undid the effects of Adam's fall and accomplished what Adam and we have failed to do. And then very pastorally, he says to you and I this morning, perhaps a new beginning is what you need most. If so, Matthew wants you to know that you can find that new beginning in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, what we've heard over the last couple of weeks 
particularly on Thanksgiving Eve and on Baptism Sunday, were stories of new beginnings in Christ. Now, don't miss the fact that our series this, uh, this month is called The Dawn of Redeeming Grace is keyed off that idea. And Thanksgiving Eve, our theme was redemption stories. Between Thanksgiving Eve and Baptism Sunday, we heard 12 stories of Christ coming into people's lives and doing something new, even miraculous. And how God tells the story and how he begins the story here in a genealogy matters. And I wonder this morning, it's been my prayer this week, could it be, could it be that God's new beginning story that he wants to tell next is yours? Because he is also, as Matthew points out through his genealogy, he's a God of promises kept. He's a God of new beginnings, but he's also a God of promises kept. And Matthew does this in at least three ways. He does this through the titles that is, are given to Jesus in the first verse. He does this through the arrangement of this genealogy itself. And he does it through the content, who is in the genealogy. In all three cases, this genealogy screams that God has kept his promises. So beginning with the titles, in verse one and four times in total throughout chapter one, Jesus is referenced as Messiah or the Greek word would be Christ, which simply means anointed king. From the outset, Matthew again is making the point that Jesus is king and he'll carry that on through his whole gospel. But he also opens with two titles, two Old Testament titles. The first is son of David, that Jesus is the son of David in verse one, who fulfills the promise to David. We read of it in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, God says to David. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Jesus is the son of David. But also speaking at the time to a largely Jewish, Jewish audience, Matthew also calls him the son of Abraham, fulfilling the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and later Genesis 15. We'll read just the last line here of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It says, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, through your offspring, through your descendant. Jesus is also the son of Abraham. These titles inform us from this genealogy that God has kept his promise, that Jesus fulfills these two promises, but it's also in the arrangement of the genealogies. One of the things that's fascinating about biblical genealogies is that they're often edited and arranged for a particular purpose. Now, certainly uh, the Holy Spirit superintended genealogies in the Bible, we believe for the sake of record keeping. It validates the biblical record. But it's also there for other points of emphasis that are all ultimately pointing us to know God and, and specifically to know Jesus Christ. And so Matthew, I believe, takes no shame in the fact that he edits his genealogy to arrange it into three groups of 14 that exist in three epochs of time in Israel's history, if you will. We looked at them in the beginning. Abraham to David, David to, ba to the Babylonian exile, and the exile to the birth of Christ. And what is, what is Matthew saying through the use of these three groups of 14? Well, there's a variety of opinions Ferguson takes one of the popular ones, and that is that by converting the Hebrew letters for the name David to numbers, you get the number 14. Now, that's not something that we might naturally do, but to the Jewish mind, the repetition of David's number at this time would have signaled again, David, David, David. Jesus is the promise of the fulfillment 
of the coming king in David's line. And that he is, as we see through the content, those that, that Matthew names specifically in the content of this genealogy are those that were the heirs to the throne of David through the successive generations. So Jesus is the legal heir of David's throne. Now it's interesting, and we'll come back to this at the very end, that Jesus' right to the throne of David is through his adoption as Joseph's son. We'll come back to that. But I want to focus on something else in noting that the genealogy uh, teaches us that God is a promise-keeping God. This is in spite of the scandal and the intrigue and the rebellion of nearly everybody listed, maybe not quite, but nearly everybody listed in Jesus' genealogy. If we study the Old Testament stories and, and those that are listed in this genealogy and get up close to it, it's very easy for us to see, and we've studied some of them over the last several years, that uh, as their lives unfold, as you get deep into their stories and you're close to the details, you go, uh-oh, God's plan is about to go left of center. Like, he's in trouble. And what Matthew does in starting with the genealogy is he, he gives us a 30,000 foot view to say, no, God's plan and his purpose prevailed in spite of the behavior of his people, in spite the, the actions of his patriarchs and the kings and so on and so forth. That generation after generation, God is fulfilling his promises. And so despite even Abraham's Sin and lying about his wife, despite all of the rebellious kings between David and Jesus, despite times at which it seemed like God had forgotten his promises and the, and the prophets recorded their cries of that, in spite all of it, Jesus' genealogy highlights in striking detail that God's purpose was prevailing all along from one generation to the next. He's a promise-keeping God. What about you this morning? Do you doubt God's promises? Do you struggle? Do you find yourself confused or doubting at times? That's part of why God gives us, through Matthew's gospel, the opening of a genealogy. You see, we celebrate the first advent of Christ this morning, but there is a promised second advent. Christ came as a baby with the purpose and the mission of going to the cross to bear our sins to be raised to new life, to be essentially the first fruits, the first harvest of, of our resurrection, that we will live with him forever. And he promises to reign and rule and that we will reign and rule with him. But isn't it true at times that we lose sight of his promises? This past week, I had the privilege of sitting with two senior saints who in their stage of right, life right now are looking at something that's not immediate, but sort of imminent regarding end-of-life concerns. And they're asking end-of-life questions. And the sweet privilege I had this week was to just sit with them to talk about life, but also to assure them of their security in Jesus and their faith in Jesus by reading Scripture. And by the way, Dick and Carol, it was a privilege to spend time in your home and I will be back soon. But I want to share a couple of the scriptures that I shared with them this week. Because one of them, in particular from John chapter 14, I believe that the Lord wants to speak to you this morning through the words of Jesus. He says this. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Christ has promised that if you have placed your faith and trust in him, then he will bring you, bring us to be with him one day. And whether that is when he returns in this life or it is at the end of this life, that promise is secure. But God doesn't just leave us with some far off promise and everything from now to then, we're kind of on our own. One of the other scriptures we shared was Philippians chapter one, where Paul says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until that day of Christ Jesus, until Christ returns. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are his. And the trials of your life, even those that are a result of your actions or choices and their timing, all of it is not outside of God's plan. How do we know? Because Matthew gives us a genealogy where we see that repeated over and over again. Now that's not a license for us to go out and rebel and sin against God. It's a teaching point to say that despite what I may have done or what I may struggle with, even confusion and doubt, that God is a promise-keeping God. So Ferguson tells us pastorally, we sometimes get lost, but God is never lost. We are often confused by our circumstances. God never is. We have doubts about his purposes. God knows what he is doing. His promises never fail. You know, I think part of the issue, at least speaking for myself, is that I often forget that God isn't like me. Right? I can be fickle with promises. I told you the story years ago about standing up my great uncle who wanted to take me to, to breakfast at seven, in seventh grade, which was a great honor, and how I, I overslept. And, and, and it was sort of like breaking a promise, and I felt terrible. And there's other times where I've been fickle about promises. Maybe you broke a promise this year. Maybe you've broken so many small promises in a, in a serial way that your word means nothing. God is a God of new beginnings. And because he is a God who keeps his promises, he can transform you, transform us into promise-keeping sorts of people. Because, as Matthew also teaches us, he's a God of surprising grace. He's a God of surprising grace. How do we see that in this genealogy? Well, we could see it in a multitude of ways if we had time. One of my regrets this morning is we really can't drill down into uh, the names and the individual accounts of those that are in this genealogy. But we can highlight the fact that there are four women in Jesus' genealogy that Matthew cites, which is unusual for an ancient and even biblical genealogy. Five, if you count Mary, for, count for Mary who, has, who gives birth to Jesus. And several years ago, I think it was six or seven years ago now, we spent the entire Advent series studying these five women. Some of you were here and you remember that. But in these four women in Jesus' genealogy, we see at least two principles. And the first is this, that God's grace extends beyond the chosen. Beyond simply God's chosen people, Israel, at least two of these women are outsiders, foreigners. All four of them are marginalized in some way. And some scholars believe that both Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth is, of course, a Moabitess, and that Bathsheba is a Hittite. But we don't know that for sure, but we know that two of them are non-Israelites. And the point is this, is that we too were adopted into God's family as outsiders, 
God's grace extends beyond the chosen. This has always been his heart. He tells his people that he's chosen them uniquely so that he might display the glory of a relationship with Almighty and Holy God to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 19, he actually calls Egypt Israel's enemy, his handiwork, and Assyria his friend in a a future tense kind of way. He has always been the God of the nations. He says to the church through Peter and Peter's letter, using the language of the Old Testament, that you, church, are a chosen people and a royal priesthood to do what? To display what it looks like to walk with God that others might know him. God's grace extends beyond the chosen. So let me apply this to you today, perhaps to you. If you're here this morning in church or you're tuning in on time online and you're like, I just don't fit with the whole church vibe. Right, like there's a lingo you guys speak. Right? There's a way that you dress. There's a, a, a subculture thing that I just don't fit. God is for you. His grace extends beyond just the chosen. By the way, I love, if that's you, I love those kinds of people coming into the church because it helps the rest of us appreciate what God has done. It, it's fresh. Second thing is that God's grace overcomes our sin and shame. All of these women understood some level of shame if they didn't have it in their own lives personally. Tamar bears Perez and Zerah through the incestuous, deceitful, contractual, weird relationship of sexual union with her father-in-law. You can read about that in late in Genesis. And one scholar noted that that Jesus' family line extends through Perez and and God did not uh, come up with a cleaner way to get to the Messiah. Perez is included because God's grace extends beyond sin and shame. Rahab is, of course, a prostitute from Jericho. Ruth is a Moabitess. Moabites weren't even allowed into the temple area. And of of course, Bathsheba is the object of David's adultery. These women understood shame some worse than others. Some of their stories were weightier than others. But the point is that Matthew and through the Holy Spirit, God himself ordains that their names are specifically named in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ because God's grace overcomes our sin and shame. In other words, no matter what your personal sin and shame or that even generationally in a legacy way of your family, God is able to sympathize through Christ with the mess of our human lives and the drama and brokenness of our families. I love the way Ferguson says it here. He says, it was to save the kind of people who appear in his family tree that Jesus came. And so they're included in there very much on purpose. And we can relate. Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, in his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, he quotes what I think is probably an echo of Matthew one twenty one. A little bit later in this chapter in Matthew, it says, you will name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Listen to what Paul says. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think he's echoing Matthew one twenty one there. And then Paul says this, and I'm the worst of them. This is Paul the Apostle, the one who did more to spread Christianity through the ancient known world than anyone else, who identifies his own need for grace. I wonder this morning, do you know that you need grace? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's likely there's two groups of people in this room. There are those who say, you don't know my story. 
And maybe it's not what you've done, but you don't even know generationally what's happened in my family. I'm beyond saving. And au contraire, the Apostle Paul would say. And then there are those of you, and this is probably the more dangerous of the two groups, who say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I haven't done what they've done. And friends, that's a dangerous place to be. Paul says, I am the worst of them. If you're in that first group, Jesus comes near. He understands. He even bears our sin and shame because he has none to bear of his own. That's what we learn in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, with your weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so Paul can say, therefore... Therefore, let us approach the throne of what? Of grace, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find what? Grace to help us in our time of need. And what is grace? Grace is the lavish, undeserved, unmerited, overflowing favor and love of God through Christ. You know, we got a small taste of that last week. This idea that God delights in surprising us with his grace. If you were here for the second service and saw the baptisms, and if you weren't, I'd encourage you to go on YouTube or our Facebook page and, and watch the second service baptisms. I had the delight of being personally involved in surprising Lily Slaughter. Lily was uh, raised here at the church and went to the youth group when I was the youth pastor and, and uh, had the privilege of baptizing her as someone who had a fatherly influence in her life. But if you were here last week, you heard me share that I wasn't the only one, an older, only older man who'd had an influence and, and shaped her in her Christian walk. And so I had a great fun in arranging this idea that Nate Parks would be able to come from New Hampshire and take part in baptizing Lily. So I I prayed for her, he baptized her. And if you were here, you saw her face. You saw that moment. And I can tell you that arranging that surprise, the delight of that and being so excited for her to be excited, I think captures in a little bit the essence of the heart of God, that he delights to surprise us with his grace. I think that's part of why the angels, when, they, when the Christ child is born and they realize all the mystery of the Old Testament revealed in God in human flesh as a baby, they explode in worship. And so Ferguson ends his devotional meditations on this section with these three words. Remember Jesus' genealogy. Because Jeannie's, Jesus' coming in, offer, in coming, he offers you a new beginning. And you can stand on it because he's a God who, as we can see, keeps his promises, even generations and generations down the line. And he delights to surprise us with his grace. As some have said, the manger casts the shadow of the cross. It's the cross that we remember this morning as we begin Advent. And don't miss the fact that Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter one is the family line of Joseph, not Mary, who gives birth to him. That is that Matthew shows us the legal line to David's throne through adoption as Joseph's legal son. And this has profound application for you and me, particularly if you feel any of the things we've talked about this morning, not quite fitting in in the church, having sin and shame or whatever it might be. We of our own natural state 
have nothing to bring to the table that deserves God's inheritance, the inheritance of eternal life and forgiveness and the blessings of God. In fact, Romans 5 teaches that apart from Christ, we are the sworn enemy of God. And how does God respond and treat his enemies? Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies against God, while we were in a posture of rebellion against him, while we were acting out against him, not not at the moment at which we decided to come to church, not at the time in which our hearts might have been softened toward him, not at a time where we were open-minded to the things of God. No, in the place of our worst rebellion, Christ died for us. He's a God of surprising grace. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to exhort us to respond accordingly as we move toward communion. One of the most powerful principles of the New Testament that we see practiced and celebrate recovery, but that we all should practice, is that sin brought into the light loses its power. Sin that is held in secret and behind closed doors and isolation grows in its potency and its power. Sin brought into the light loses its power. And so I want to invite you this morning as we get ready to take communion, we're going to pray together. And I want to invite you to repent, to confess and repent, to turn away from whatever it is that you might be ashamed of this morning. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you already have the forgiveness of God in Christ from the moment you received him as Savior. But we're, as we confess and repent, we're walking in that forgiveness. We're appropriating it into our week and into our daily life. And so we do that And then we take the bread and the cup, remembering the price, and we worship him. I'll invite the band to come at this point as we prepare to take communion and close. But I want to speak to those that are not believers this morning. If you are not a Christian today, I want to invite you to become one right now. The Bible teaches that apart from Christ, we will die in our sins and be judged by God for eternity. And if you do not know Christ, that is you this morning. And it is that we would plead with you to make a decision for Christ today. The Bible teaches if we repent and turn away from our sins and turn to Jesus and trust in his death on the cross in our place, we will be saved. My prayer for you this week is that God's redeeming grace would dawn in your heart and your life in this moment. And so let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Before I pray this morning, I wanna ask you as every head is bowed this morning, if you're ready to repent of your sins and receive Christ as your savior and Lord and begin a relationship with God today, if you wanna take that step right now, then raise your hand, raise it boldly. Make a decision for eternity to follow the Lord, to walk in relationship with Christ. And as you raise your hand, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer in just a moment to begin a relationship with God today. Amen. Anyone else in this moment that is ready to give your life to Jesus? We're gonna pray together. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. And if you've raised your hand and you're ready to begin a relationship with Jesus today, I'm just gonna lead you in a simple prayer and I want you to repeat after me in your heart. Let's pray. God, I know that I am a sinner today. And Jesus, I am ready in this moment to turn away from my sin and my rebellion and even my own efforts to be religious or to be good. And Jesus, I turn toward you. 
I receive what you've done for me on the cross. I trust in you as my savior. I wanna begin walking with you today and every day for the rest of my life. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, either here or if you're at home, I wanna invite you to do two things. When we conclude our service this morning, tell the person next to you, whether you know them or not, be bold. Say, today I made a decision to become a Christian, to walk with God, and then come see me so that I can pray with you and talk with you. Brothers and sisters, we're gonna take communion now. You can prepare your, your, cup, your bread and your cup. This bread and cup is for those who know Jesus and their, as their savior. And so if you prayed that prayer 30 seconds ago, that includes you. Let's take the bread and I'm gonna give thanks for it. Jesus, we thank you that on the night you were betrayed, you took bread, something so simple, and you broke it. And you said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, we are doing this, remembering the cost of our salvation in obedience to you as your people gathered together in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take the bread. Give thanks for the cup as well. Jesus, we thank you that after the bread that you took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus, again, we recognize that it costs your death to bring us life. And we do this in remembrance of what you've done for us until we're with you for eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the cup.